Would you turn uh, in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4? If you want to use the Bible that's in the pew or chair, it's on page 982. 982. <clears throat> you can follow uh, there in the bulletin if you so choose. I also have uh, Isaiah 26 there as well. <clears throat> Let me pray as we uh, read. And I speak from the word. Lord, bless us. Open up our eyes. Enable us, Lord, to embrace all the more your rich salvation in Christ. And, Lord, to live out his life aggressively, uh, vigorously, joyfully as we seek to love others as you have loved us. Bless us, Lord. We pray for the name of Christ. Amen. So Paul, here toward the end of this little letter, Philippians, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the reading of God's word. We'll read Isaiah a bit later uh, when I refer to it. Now, a question here. How do we deal with fear? How do we deal with anxiety and worry? I looked up some apps I want to share with you. These are the names of the apps. Nature Sounds, Relax Melodies, Breathe and Relax, Key Gong Meditation and Relaxation, Acupressure, Hypnosis, Meditation Timer, and Tracker with Interval Chimes. Now, these I look to as band-aids, band-aids for an open wound, okay? Even Freud, this is interesting, he says that anxiety is where the most important questions converge in a human life. If you can solve its riddle, that is, if you can solve what's causing your worry, okay, It will throw a flood of light on our whole mental existence, he says. In other words, it will reveal everything that's going on inside of you if you can just figure out what you're worrying about and why you're worrying about it. Ed Welch, in his great book, and I will quote pretty freely here and there from Ed Welch in his book on worry, He says that our anxieties and worries reveal, among other things, our desires. They reveal our needs. They reveal what we love. They reveal what we value. And even God's most frequent command in Scripture has to do with this. Do not be afraid. Something over 300 times. God continues and continues and continues to say this. Don't be afraid. 
He is certainly alert to our fears. He doesn't ignore our fears. He doesn't uh, treat them as unimportant. It shows what a great need we have in concerning our fears. It shows how dangerous they are and how we must avoid them. I would put it this way, how deadly, debilitating, and difficult our fears are. So rather than an app that just kind of deals lightly, we need to go deep inside our hearts and figure this thing out. I love Charlie Brown's commitment. He says, I have a new philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. (laughs) That's typical Charlie Brown. And this passage would say that it is beyond us to experience what we were meant to experience as human beings is beyond us. We need nothing less than God's great work of shalom to guard our hearts and our minds. In fact, Paul says in the next letter in Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. So shalom is to rule us. Shalom is to guard us. So we must not allow our lives to be the playground of anxieties or maybe better, the boxing bag of anxieties. But let shalom rule. Let shalom guard us. So I've entitled this then, Welcome God's Sentinel, you know, or guard or soldier. Welcome God's Sentinel. Shalom. And in order to welcome God's sentinel, we have to welcome these other things that uh, Paul sets forth here. First, we have to welcome joy and gratitude. He begins this section, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And then in the midst of, uh, as he's talking about praying, he says, with thanksgiving. In fact, thanksgiving is really the emphasis uh, in that passage. So we must embrace this joy and gratitude. Make a wide place for joy and gratitude in your life. In every situation, he says always, that's a tough word. In every situation, the joy of knowing who God is, how he loves you, what his purposes are in your life now and forever, these can give you a quiet sense of satisfaction and joy in the most difficult times. Let joy and gratitude run wild in your life. Let joy and gratitude wash into you and encourage you and renew you. That's a great quest for the rest of your life, that you will be governed by joy and gratitude. Joy is a handmaiden to peace. And that's why they're so closely related here. And it's really an appeal to know God, a, a, an appeal to acknowledge who he is through this rejoicing and gratitude. It's to rejoice in all that he is, all that he's done, all that he will do for you, <clears throat> It enables you to break through the clouds and see his shining goodness, to see his control of all things. 
And in praise and thanksgiving, we recall not only his personal good, but his abundant care of the whole creation. Now, in fourth grade, I was driving home, and for the first time, I saw bricks and leaves. I didn't know you could see bricks and leaves because I had my first pair of glasses. It was tremendous. Now, it was... uh, a little daunting to me because back then fourth graders didn't have glasses that often. So I was called names and the like, and it didn't help that in boys life, uh, the one guy that wore glasses in the cave boys was named Darwin. (laughs) So I knew it was as bad as I thought, you know, (laughs) but I've, I've sometimes been driving down at night and just will look over the top of my glasses to see how bad it would be. And of course, just immediately, it just scares me to death to think I would be driving down the highway without glasses. Everybody back off, get off the highway, you know. It'd be better if he was wildly drunk than what I could see. And that's what joy and thanksgiving do for you and me. It brings the reality of God's glory and his greatness and his goodness back to the fore. It refocuses us so that we see him as he is. Thanksgiving is really an act of faith to see him, to know him, and to freshly believe in who he is. You know, Romans one twenty one tells us that the first step of idolatry was that we wouldn't give him thanks. The first thing said about us in Romans 1 about our sin was we stopped giving thanks. We stopped recognizing God. We stopped being dependent upon him and recognizing that everything we have is his gift. And of course, the first step back always is thanksgiving. And every step toward him is full of thanksgiving. That's how we get our arms around him more and more tightly. And he becomes sweeter and sweeter to us through rejoicing and thanksgiving. And to begin thanking him in this situation that we're in, that's causing so much anxiety, right? As it is right now that he is ruling, he is giving himself to us in it. He will do me good in it. He will bring me through in it. This beginning of joy and thanksgiving itself is the end of anxiety or at least along the pathway there. So welcome joy and gratitude, but welcome also an open life before God. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. In the context of this joy and thanksgiving, we welcome an open life before God. I love how Calvin puts this in his language. Unload into the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Sweet sound, huh? Unload into the bosom of God. Look where it's being lodged into his very heart. All these things that harass you. So we cast our care on him 
and we let it be his care. We commend ourselves to him. We commend all that is going on in our life into his care. We lay open our troubles to God. We spread them out before God. We lean on him. It's full disclosure in the presence of God. It's our openness about our needs before God. Our acknowledged emptiness in his presence. And maybe a better translation is, or paraphrase, stop worrying, let God know what is troubling you. Right? Stop worrying. Let God know what is troubling you. It's very personal. And maybe you can you, you justify your worry by saying, well, my worries aren't anything compared to many other people's problems. That may be true. But God doesn't assign you a number and say, you know, you're number 533 in terms of importance. So I'd rather not hear about your stuff, right? No, you're welcome. He doesn't assign you a number. He understands how stubborn fears can be. He understands how invasive and controlling fears can be. Your fears are not trivial to God, ever. And he, thankfully, being the Lord of all creation, is like the captain who says, don't be afraid. I know what to do. I can handle this. I can handle your situation. I am handling your situation. So we welcome this openness, this open life before God. We welcome joy and gratitude. We welcome an open life before God. And as a very part of that is to welcome humility because we are being empty before him. This is our way to say, I'm totally dependent. I do not have it together. I do not have the answers. I cannot change. I cannot change my circumstances. At the 25th uh, anniversary prayer time we had that weekend, we looked at Jehoshaphat's great prayer in Second Chronicles. And for most of the prayer, he's praising God and all the great things God has done for Israel and what a faithful God he has been to build up his faith as he's requesting to God. But toward the end, I love this statement. And and this is one to bear in mind and maybe repeat some of these words in your prayers. He says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that wonderful? You can be that helpless before God. I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to handle this situation. And and what I'm facing is way beyond me. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I depend upon you completely. And in the end, we don't have peace because he answers our wishes exactly. Or even that we understand how he's going to do it. We don't have it all figured out. We simply put ourselves in his hands. We don't know what he will do, but we know him afresh. And we lay it upon him. What's encouraging to me, as several writers have said, God is not anxious. You think, well, yeah, I know. No, just think about it. He is not anxious. He 
he will accomplish his purposes. Nothing will stand in the way. And we can enter into his view of these things. We can enter into his perspective on these things. Oh, Lord, I belong to you. And everything is in your hands. And you know what you're going to do. You knew what I would enter into. And you are allowing it for my good. And you will accomplish your purposes in it. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. I love when Jesus says, as he's uh, about to pray the Lord's Prayer, he says, The Lord knows what you have need of before you ask. Now, you can read that in a wrong way and say, Yeah, I know, I know, God knows everything, so he knows what I'm going to say before I say it. That's not his point, right? Or, or if he knows what I'm going to ask, why don't I ask it? That's not the point. The point is, rather than go to God and God's like turned away from you and rolling his eyes and saying, well, what is it? You know, this kind of attitude, which we sometimes think God has. God is already totally involved in what you're going through. He's immersed in your pain and your suffering and your struggle. In that sense, he knows what you're going to ask. And he is already there, right? That kind of attitude from God. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Near. Later in the Bible, Peter has his version of this. You may be familiar with First Timothy. I mean, First. Yeah, Peter in First Timothy, First Peter five seven, where he says, "Cast all your care on Him because He cares for you." Just think of this: the King comes and He bends over in front of you and He says, "Lay your burdens on Me. Lay your burdens on Me because I care for you. I want to bear those burdens. I want to own your troubles. I want you to cast them upon Me." And it's interesting, this is welcoming humility because in that very context, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties upon him. You see, it's part of our brokenness and our humility to cast our cares upon him. Pride says, I can handle it. I can do it. I'll work this out on my own. I'll get back to you, God. But in humility, we welcome humility. We welcome emptying ourselves before God and his grace. And when he says this peace will surpass all understanding, it could mean that it goes beyond anything you can imagine. But maybe the more likely thing is that it is beyond anything you could devise for yourself. It's beyond anything that your mind could create for yourself. We cannot achieve this on our own. It is only God that can bring about this glorious peace in our lives. And notice there's warrior language, which is uh, ironic here. But it's warrior language that it will guard you. It will stand sentry, uh, protect you like a Attachment of soldiers, a garrison of soldiers. And there's where Isaiah 26, 3 comes in. 
uh, our translation is, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Mind and, and stayed are two words that occur at the first part of this verse. And when you see the, the way these are translated in other places, um, uh, I think that the better translation is found below that. And notice what it says, with steadfast purpose, you keep him in perfect peace because he trusts in you. I love how that expresses that God is bent on keeping you in peace as you entrust yourself helplessly to him. This is not a casual thing with God. This is not an afterthought with God. This is his steadfast purpose for you to know the joy of wholeness and fullness and and prosperity and flourishing abundance in his presence. So, This peace, you'll notice, is stated to be, it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ. And we'd have to say, in Christ and nowhere else. So that all of God's blessings are caught up in the person of Christ and outside of Christ. It says in Isaiah 48, 22, that for the wicked, there is no peace. Now, it's not separating us out that we're the less wicked people. We're simply the wicked people who found grace in Christ. We're the wicked people who, by God's grace, has, have been given faith and repentance, and we have hidden ourselves in Jesus and found forgiveness. But it is in Christ, it is in Christ that we know we have favor with God. It is in Christ that we have the same acceptance that Jesus has. That God smiles on us as he does his own son, only because we are in Christ. It is in Christ that we have received the Holy Spirit and we've become the temple of God. And God has taken it upon himself to transform us and to make us into his own image. It is in Christ that we have the hope that, that we are fellow heirs with Christ and will inherit the kingdom with Christ and will reign with Christ forever. And these are the things that comfort us and the things that enable us to live in shalom and well-being uh, with uh, full hope of what God will do for us in the future because we are in Christ. But outside Christ, uh, there is no peace here and certainly not in the final day. So Psalm fifty-five twenty-two says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Finally, as we've welcomed joy and and an open heart before God and a humility before God. I want to close by talking about this contrast, the stupor of anxiety versus the adventure of shalom. These may be unusual terms. Worry, anxiety, uh, Ed Welch says, is like a false prophet. Michel de Mont- 
Tanya, I think that's close enough, has said, My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. He's talking about worry, right? My life is full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. Worry creates this sinkhole in your life that drains away all other constructive thinking. Worriers are false prophets. They're more like palm readers and tarot cards and Ouija board, inventing things that are coming down the pike and proclaiming them and fixing our minds upon them as though this is truth. Worshiping our worry, enthroning it, making it our Bible truth. Fear wants to be your boss. It wants to be your authority. It wants to tell you how life really is. Of course, it's a false prophet. And we have so many things that we worry about. And and, and, uh, Ed Welch talks about these, the makeup of, of worry he talks about what we think we need, and he says, worry is just a stone throw away, stones throw away from what you need, from uh, what you need, worry and need. Uh, for instance, if we need what people can give us, then they are in control of us, and we will fear them. We'll fear loss of reputation, a loss of influence, a loss of respect, a loss of admiration, a loss of security. These often are the center of our lives, really how, how we live our lives, looking for these things, craving these things, being undone if we don't have these things, and even reacting with great anger when we don't receive the honor and respect that we think we deserve. And we don't realize this is one of my great anxieties a banking on receiving these things from people. Our fear, therefore, points to what we really care about. It can point to the center of our world, and we give this fear authority. For instance, if we're afraid we don't have enough money, then money's probably enthroned in our lives. To trust in it is to be ruled by it or owned by it. And so we need to many times locate our fears, kind of like spotlighting, shining alligator eyes at night in the bayou. What do these fears say that I trust in? What do my fears say that I love? Some adults fear being a a little overweight because of health, but sometimes it's just what people think about me. I'm so fearful of what people might think and the way I look. Of course, public speaking has to do with the opinions of others. But things really get serious when we fear people to the point that we disobey God. We fear, we refuse to care for others for fear of what it will cost, what it will expose me to, the rejection, the loss of control of my time or ordering my day as I choose. We can't believe God will give us life if we give ourselves away to others. He'll not take care of us. This is the problem with evangelism for many of us, that we worship acceptance with others to the point 
that we won't tell them or speak about Jesus Christ to them. Because fear, anxiety governs our lives. And so I say this, shalom orients us toward love. And it's the adventure of love, the adventure of love, as opposed to the stupor of anxiety. And for me personally, this has really helped me to combat anxiety, to think of I'm not going to allow anxiety to ruin the adventure of living for God's glory and the adventure of spinning myself for others. Or I will say, I'm learning to do that. You see, Jesus revealed what human life is supposed to be, that our desire to love outdistances our desire to be loved. So that true humanness, Welch says, is found more in sacrificial love for our enemies than in being the object of another person's affections. So if we are committed to Christ and to exhibit Christ and to live in his shalom and his security and his safety, rejection can hurt, but it won't sidetrack me from my mission of love. To continue to love. To want to serve more than be served and honor more than be honored. To run the risk of a lopsided relationship Where I pour more into the other person gives back. God does it all the time. That's all he has to work with. That he will love us more than he is loved. He advertises, as Welch says, his extravagant affection for us even when we are indifferent or opposed to him. I think of a little girl that comes running to greet me sometimes down here and can't believe that she's getting to see me again, little Katie Crow. And it just almost fills me with tears to see this joy, this eagerness that's so lost in its happiness to love me. And I think, oh Lord, if I could be a little part of that and my eagerness to love others. To not be compromised by my concern about the future and what will happen if I obey God. What will happen if I love that person? What will happen if I love them and speak to them about Christ in in the context of our relationship? No, I can do it with wholeheartedness, heartedness, giving myself away, giving all my attention away to how my faith can express itself in love. You see, when we're saying, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? We can't be worrying about what people are thinking. We're saying, yeah, death ultimately does have the victory. Death sting is still there and it controls me. And it controls how I'm going to love. He says his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Will we believe in that name or deny that name? God is with us. Emmanuel, it's his name. You've got to call him that. You and I have got to believe it and believe that he is with us. And so as Moisey Silva says, let joy take the place of your discontent and anxiety. Look away from yourselves to the needs of your brothers, being willing to yield your rights and privileges for their sake. 
That's the meaning of this word of reasonableness in our context. And as far as your needs are concerned, bring them all before God in an attitude of gratitude for what he's already done for you. It means that word reasonableness, that we will be gracious, we won't retaliate, we'll be slow to take offense, we'll be swift to forgive it. We'll try to see things from others' point of view. <clears throat> I love this line in Get Out of Your Own Way by you too. It's got this line, love has to fight for its existence. The enemy has armies of assistance. I think of the armies that would worry you and bog you down. And love has got to fight for its existence. Fight into the shalom of God. As Isaiah says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's shalom talking right there. That's shalom taking over our lives. To close... And Welch gives this, I've read this several times because I've read the, uh, read the Lord of the Rings several times. But there's this diversionary att- a tactic that they're going to use because they know Frodo is in there. He's going to try to throw the ring into the, the fire. But they're trying to draw the attention away from Frodo. So they're going to attack the black gates of Mordor which is just crazy because you're going to get slaughtered, but they're going to do it anyway. And Gimli, the dwarf, responds. And I I want us to think about this and say, Lord, as you call me into this life, as you call me into sacrifice and love, may I have the heart of Gimli. Gimli says, certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? Fear is replaced with the simple question, what does my Father want me to do now? Let us pray. Oh Lord, give us your joy. Give us your shalom. Invade our hearts, Lord, and enable us to know that you are with us. You are Emmanuel. You have only good that you will do for your people Only good in the things you call us to do, the fearful things, the hard things. Enable us, Lord, to locate our fears, to see them in the swamp. And, Lord, to draw the lines and realize this thing that I fear, I hold it above God in some ways. I value it. I love it. It is so important to me. It threatens me if I cannot have it. Oh, Lord, bless us. We'll not be governed by our anxieties, but guarded by the shalom of God for your glory and honor. Amen.